You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, my name's Casey. Um, I'm one of uh, the pastors here at Free City. And uh, man, if you're, you're new uh, to Free City, man, you're coming at a, a great time where we're going to be talking just a little bit each week. Um, about the, the church and about um, eldership um, in the church and what that means. And, uh, and man, uh, bringing Lowell before, uh, this is a time that, man, we've just noticed in, in Lowell and Heather uh, a mantle of leadership uh, that they've extended beyond themselves and, man, people have followed. You know, and, and Lowell and Heather, man, they've been with us uh, through the ups and downs for, for a long time. Lowell was actually uh, the first person in Free City Church to call me uh, their pastor. Uh, we were um, getting breakfast and we were talking and he was sharing uh, something out of his life and he just kind of in a kind of desperation said, well, gosh, man, I don't know. I mean, you're my pastor. What do you think I had to do? And I remember thinking, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But I also remember getting in my truck and, and crying thinking, um, man, I, I don't know if anyone should have the honor uh, to be called their pastor, especially when I'm so much younger, uh, so much younger in experience. And so in this next season, for about this next month, um, we set time aside to introduce Lowell to you, which many of you know, um, to introduce him by giving his story before you and providing time that you would look and search the scriptures. And so I want to direct you where to read. Uh, we want you to read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's not the text we're dealing with this morning. Uh, but over the next month to read about what the Apostle Paul says about church leadership, about what it's supposed to look like, the character that's supposed to come out. And then also Titus 1. Uh, we have a, a shortened list, but it says all the same things. And to consider, prayerfully consider, with grace, uh, man, the qualifications of pastor, eldership, um, bishop, and overseer. All the same words to describe one body, and that body is a called and qualified plurality of men that God has set aside to lead his church in doctrine and direction, with all their imperfect things about them, needing grace, uh, needing repentance, needing all of those things, but with fear and trembling, come before the Lord, because one day, in Hebrews 13, verse 17, it says that we will give an account. That one day we'll give an account for how we led, treated, searched the scriptures, tried to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. When we got it wrong, came back and said, man, we're sorry, we got it wrong. Uh, all of those things that we'll give an account to Jesus Christ for his beloved bride that he paid with his blood for. Now, Hebrews 13, it also says that you should uh, obey us and make our life joyful, so read that too. Um, but it says there will be an account. And so for the next month, man, we're asking you to pray for Lowell um, and Heather. We're asking you to pray for the church. And we're asking you to look at those qualifications. And uh, if something comes up that you said, man, I just don't know if, if Lowell is qualified, that you would bring that to our attention. Uh, man, we've prayerfully um, been looking at this. We've experienced Lowell in so many ways. Um, he's been a benefit to us. Um, there, I don't know if there's a time that I've been talking about a troubled situation that Lowell didn't lead into his testimony to say, gosh, man, 
I got this wrong and blew this, and this is how the Lord showed up. And man, that is how we live out of our testimony, that our weaknesses become strength because we show how Jesus covered our sins and changed us. So with no more to say on that for now, uh, each week as we come up, we'll talk a little bit about um, eldership and, and what that means. But we are in Matthew 14. And so if you have your Bibles, go, go to Matthew 14. And I'm going to summarize what we're about to step in and look at verse by, fir- by verse as we enter in. And so normally we, we have someone come and they read the scriptures And we separate that from the preaching because we want to make a point that, man, we can get up here and we can preach and we can get it wrong, but that says nothing about the correctness of the Scriptures, that they are inspired by God and they are authoritative for our lives, meaning that sometimes we come to some of their teaching and we think, man, I don't know if that fits me or this life or if that fits the world anymore. And when we have those doubts, we are wrong. That they stand apart from the service, inspired by God. They stand apart from the teaching. We hope that the teaching you know, unpacks it and applies to our heart. And then our prayer in preaching is that it inclines your heart toward repentance when you see a beautiful Jesus. But we usually set that aside. And so someone reads it to say, this is the word of God. Trust in this. And Casey's about to preach. He might blow it, but trust in this. But for time's sake, I'm just going to summarize it. So this is a one-off. But so what we have here, two super familiar passages. And so we have Jesus feeding the 5,000. Like he is tired and he is weary and he shows up. He had just gotten bad news about John the Baptist and he's trying to get away to pray. But the people follow him and he sees their need and it says he has compassion upon them. And so he starts to teach them and then they get hungry and they're all there. And the disciples say, hey, they're hungry and we're tired. Send them away that they might find food. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And man, they just say, uh, yeah, okay, so we'll feed them. I mean, we've got a few fish and a few loaves. What is that for so many? And Jesus takes it and he multiplies it. And they come back to Jesus and Jesus gives them bread and fish and they turn around and they give it to the people. When they run out, they come back to Jesus and he gives them bread and fish and then they turn around and give it. And when it's all said and done and everyone is satisfied and everyone's had enough, it says this, that there were 12 baskets. There was enough left over. So then Jesus gets the disciples, puts them in the boat, sends them across the lake because he's still seeking rest. And then he himself goes up on the mountain to pray as he dismisses the people. And the storm comes in and the disciples are struggling against the wind and the waves and they're fearful. And suddenly they see Jesus walking beside them on the water and that really freaks them out. And Jesus says, it's me. And they're like, we're not sure. And he's no, really, it's me. And Peter says, if it's you, then tell me to walk on water. And so he gets out and he walks on water and he starts to sink and he starts to go under and he cries out, save me. And Jesus quickly saves him. And then I think sometimes kind of sarcastically says, why were you afraid? I mean, what's going on around here? And so in this text, Matthew 14 is starting what a lot of theologians call the fourth book of Matthew. 
And so it wasn't written separately. It's like chapters before the chapters were added to the gospel of Matthew. It's like chapters and breaks. And so what you see is Jesus enters in. He interacts with different people. They decide whether he's worthy to follow or not. And then what happens is there's a teaching section where he explains what just happened through parables and teaching. And so this is the fourth of five And so we're going to start off and we're going to see in verses 14 through 17 different interactions that Jesus is having with people. And then starting in verses 18, 19, and 20, he's going to teach about those interactions. And ultimately, he's going to teach on why so many people are walking away from Jesus. Jesus' popularity had been growing and growing, and we're going to see it grow here. I mean, 5,000 men, not counting women and children, gather to hear his teaching. But we're just on the back half of Matthew, and quickly, and Matthew spends a lot of time in the Passion of the Christ about his death and resurrection. Quickly, the crowds change their mind about Jesus, and he's going to tell us why. And so, ultimately, what is happening here is these tensions are mounting. Like the question about Jesus, is he the Messiah? But the problem is Jesus is not the Messiah they were expecting. Like the people wanted a victorious leader who would come and overthrow the Roman uh, captors. Even Peter believed this is what Jesus should be like. That's why he draws his sword and cut off Malchus's ear in the garden. And you can read about that in all of the Gospels. But the, the servant is named In John chapter 18, in Matthew 14, Jesus starts to really correct the views. He didn't come to raise an army. He came to raise humanity. He didn't come to raise up some sort of military offense. He came to be raised up himself upon a cross to purchase for the Father a bride that is fully reunited. If you're in the Bible reading plan, you know, we're in Revelation. And if you're like, man, things are getting weird there. Man, there's the Bible Project. It's got these videos, Bible Project Revelation. It really kind of brings it together and helps you see how it's being written and what it's being said. And it's meant to encourage you but it ends in revelation 20 and 21 where the bride the church is brought before jesus and there's this huge celebration but we're in this tension moment where jesus starts to say plainly over and over and over he came to suffer and to die at the hands of his enemies but he would be raised again Jesus wasn't the promised rescuer that they were expecting. Oftentimes, the way Jesus rescues us is not what we expect. So look at Matthew 14. Matthew 14, we're putting these two stories together because it's kind of like the Goldilocks and the three bears. You know, so you've got the beginning where you've got uh, the bread is too little. It's not enough. And then you've got the storm. It is too much. Like we can't handle it. And then you have the water. And Jesus says, come on in. It is just right. Matthew 14 wants you to see that with Jesus, everything can be right-sized, even death itself. And so this is what I want you to hear, Matthew 14. Like if, if, if life is overwhelming you, 
If life is just too much, the waves are too high and the wind is too strong, you need the message of Matthew 14. Jesus can walk upon the storms of life and he can usher and raise you up and bring you to safety where the only thing left is to worship him. But if you're also looking and you're looking at your life and the reservoirs in your life are too little and you just don't know if you're going to be able to make it, you don't know how much longer it can last. Matthew 14 tells us Jesus can right-size your world and he can right-size you. And so verses 13 through 21, this is where we're going to look. What Jesus does with too little, and we're just going to work kind of verse by verse and we're going to get through it. What he does with too little and it's he makes it more than enough. And then we're going to look at what Jesus does with too much, starting in verse 22 through 31. And then we're going to wrestle with his question, why do we doubt? So what does Jesus do with too little? What does Jesus do when it's too much? What do we do with our doubt? And so let's just hop in. Let's take a look at this. And so the first thing, what Jesus does with too little. And what we see is Jesus takes what is too little and he makes it more than enough. He takes what we have and he like right sizes the problem so that there's enough left over. He, he supersizes what you bring. And so like McDonald's used to give you the option to supersize something, but then there was a documentary called Supersize Me. And so like, man, PR, we got to get away from that. So now they just right size it. But Jesus takes what we have and if we give it to him, he multiplies and he builds it up. And so look at verse 13. Verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And so like, there's a couple of things we just want to see in Jesus. Like he's tired and he's hurting. And so first, he's tired. Like if you look back at chapter 13 that comes before this, he had just spent a lot of time teaching and I know like right now, I know teaching is not like digging ditch. It's not like manual labor. But I want to tell you, it's tiring. Like getting up and moving your hands in abnormal size amounts and talking and yelling and then bringing it really down low like this. It's actually tiring. Like it is actually tiring. And so Jesus had spent time and time teaching, pouring his heart out to people whom he loved, knowing that some of them would be so offended that they would walk away. Some would get critical about words and little parts. Like Jesus is tired. And so he dismisses the people. And he's trying to get away. But Jesus is also hurting. Look at verses 53 through 58. In verses 53 through 58, he had spent time in his hometown teaching. And so time in his hometown, the people he grew up, his neighbors, his friends, the people who signed his yearbook and said, never change. And Jesus is the only person that you can say that to with any type of integrity. The rest of y'all need to be doing some changing. These are the people he loved, he knew. And as he taught, he offended them. And they started to say, who is this? This is Jesus. Don't we know his brothers? Don't we know his sisters? Don't we know his mom? Wasn't his dad Joseph? Who does he think he is? They're offended and they turn against him. And so he's hurting. You know, but he's hurting in other ways because look at the beginning of chapter 14. 
He just received the news that his cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded and murdered by Herod. Like when, when I was growing up, I, my, my dad um, had a brother, or has a brother, um, had a brother. He actually passed away. Um, I'm going to get it right, I swear. Uh, but he never had kids, and so I didn't have any cousins on that side of my family. And then my, my mom's sister had two daughters, uh, but they were much older than me, and they didn't think I was very cool. And so I didn't, I didn't really grow up like with cousins. And so, I mean, I knew what cousins were, you know, like your, your dad's brother, your dad's sister, their kids, and then there's like a twice removed thing, and then it just kind of keeps going out. And sometimes I'm like, hey, man, you are calling people as your cousin that they are not your cousin. But like, I didn't really know what it meant to have like cousins. And so when, when I married Kinsey, uh, she would always talk about these events in her life, like all the time. And all the greatest events of her life happened with her cousins. Like she lived around her cousins. She went to the lake with her cousins. They camped out with her cousins. And I thought, man, she just can't make friends, you know? She just has cousins. And so I didn't really know what that was like until we had kids. My kids love their cousins. There is a group text with all of us and the cousins, and I have to mute it all the time because there are emojis being transferred left and right. It doesn't even make sense, but they love it. We just got back from uh, a trip to Galveston with their cousins, and so there's two sets of cousins, and they love their cousins. They, they, They don't just like group text, you know. They also mail their cousins, like letters, like snail mail. Like, you have to take it, write it, put an envelope, put a stamp on it, send it, and like three days later, it gets there. Like, my kids, like, write letters to their cousins. Like, I didn't even know that was possible. Like, I didn't even know what that would look like. I mean, like, my dearest cousin, I write to you. You know, since our last days upon Galveston shore, I miss you and my heart is full of fear. I mean, I don't know what they write. But they take time and they write letters to their cousins and their cousins write letters back to them and they're so excited and they open them up and words are misspelled and it doesn't matter because it's from their cousins. Jesus was tired and he was hurting and John is now dead and John is dead because he preached the same kind of repentance that Jesus preached and he preached the repentance pointing at Jesus saying this is the hope, the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world, John's dead. He's hurting. He's tired. And so he wants to get away to a desolate place by himself to process and to pray, to get before the Lord, to practice stillness and quietness, to hear the words from his Father, to sustain him in a moment that he's tired and hurting. And it tells us something, because we're going to see this exact same thing in just a few verses, that there was a practice in Jesus that when life was overwhelming, there's a regular practice of stepping aside and saying more than anything else, more than the effort of my hands, I need to hear from the Lord. And so this starts off with Jesus who's tired and he's hurting. In some ways, 
Maybe he's looking inside and saying, man, the ministry that's going to result, that I'm going to be raised up and crucified, maybe it's taking a toll and I need to be filled up. Maybe there's something that feels too little inside of me, and that would be the human side of Jesus talking. But maybe he has a sense more than we, and maybe we should have more of a sense that we need to be dependent in prayer. And we just sometimes you just need to get away. Like practicing that daily, moment by moment, practicing that kind of Sabbath to turn your thoughts to Jesus and his promises for you on a weekly, on a Sabbath, or maybe also kind of in different seasons. But Jesus is trying to get away to pray. He is tired. But look, verse 13, it goes, it says, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the town. And so All of a sudden, he's trying to get some time away, but the needs persist, and the call of of God upon his life is not always convenient. Sometimes the timing seems off, because needs still persist. And so he, he has this moment, he's trying to get away to do this practice that we see here in verse 13, but we also see it in verse 23. Like, if it's necessary for Jesus, it's probably necessary for us. Write that down. Probably. Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Great, I don't mean to tell you this, but it's probably talking to me, a lot of people, 5,000 men, not counting women and children, not great, like they're awesome, like they might have been really unawesome. But it was great, not necessarily super cool. And then it says, and he had compassion on them, and he healed the sick. His compassion outweighed his longing. He wanted rest. He needed rest. He needed time to process with the Father. He needed time to regroup and to heal. But his compassion moved him. And it wasn't because the crowd was so wonderful. It was because the crowd brought need. And that's probably the only thing they really could bring. And when we come to Jesus and we bring need, it moves his compassion. You know, that that compound word, you know, we're, we're hoping to get through this fourth book of Matthew. Not hoping, we're gonna. We're gonna get through the fourth section of Matthew this semester, take a little bit of break, and then pick up and finish Matthew pretty fast. And I'm trying to work it out so we deal with the resurrection on Easter because it seems fitting. And so we have to leave some things out. But like that's where we have Passion Week. And so you see, passion actually means pain. And so when you're compassionate, you feel others' pain. Jesus looked at the crowd. They were great in number. They were great in pain. And it moved him. Verse 15, it says, Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowd away and go to the villages and buy food for them. So they buy food for themselves. And so the disciples saw the need also. The need for food in the people, the need for food in the, or the need for rest in them, and the need for rest in Jesus. And they say, send them home, verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And now, like, whoever said that, it had to have been sarcastic. Like, Jesus, man, everyone's hungry. We've been here a long time. You were trying to go on a prayer retreat. They're hung- Send them away. And Jesus says, no, no, you give them something to eat. Like, oh, okay. 
we'll give him something to eat. I got, I mean, I got a couple of fish and some loaves. What are you going to do with that, Jesus? And, you know, we actually see uh, in John 6 that it says that Peter took it from a, a kid. And so, I mean, Peter's like a bully. He's like, give me your lunch money. Oh, Jesus, you want to feed him? Well, I just beat up a kid, put him in a locker, gave him a wedgie. Now I have his food. What are you going to do with that, Jesus? But we're going to see what he's going to do. And he said, bring them here to me. Bring the five loaves, bring the two fish. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all, listen to how much, it's trying to bring us in to see something. And they all ate and all were satisfied. The all would push through that conjunction. And so they all ate and they all were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And so this picture, actually, in this last season, I would say at least the last year, I have been meditating on this. And I mean, don't, don't think of anything too spiritual. I've just been coming back to this picture of like, Man, when the disciples were doing what they were supposed to do, like when it was going well, what did they do? And this is the picture. They came to Jesus, and whatever Jesus gave them, they turned around and gave it to others, and when they were out, they came back to Jesus, and Jesus gave them more, and they turned around to others and gave what Jesus just gave them, and they came back, and they might have feared, man, I keep handing everything that Jesus gives me away, and I'm hungry too. Will there be anything left for me? And there was. There was. There was more than enough left over. You know, I, I, I've been praying this um, for over a year just to simplify pastoring. Like, you know, what, what, sometimes I think about what I do. And I think, man, it's kind of weird, you know. Um, part of what I do is, you know, we look at the scriptures and we mostly just work through books of the Bible. And really, man, I just study and I read and I try to make it tangible with some points that I used to tell you at the beginning so you can take notes and then just put it down that Jesus is taking too little and he's going to make more. And I just, it goes best when I just, man, Lord, whatever you give me, I'm going to turn around and give. Sometimes I give, you know, maybe things you didn't give me and I'm sorry, forgive me. And so it's not just words, but it's also energy and, and coming up to say, Look at what is before you of all that Jesus has promised. Trust not in your hands. We're going to get there in a minute. Trust in this. And the hope is that when I run out, I'll just go back to Jesus and whatever he gives, I'll turn around and I'll give it back and go back to the scriptures and whatever I find, turn around. And sometimes you just get tired and you wonder, will there be anything left over? And this says, yes. And so this morning... Um, Remnant Church launched out and had their first public worship service. And that, that's big, yeah. And so we're talking about it afterwards because they start at 10 a.m. And, you know, we say we start at 10.30, but you, you guys are liars because you guys don't show up to 10.45. But, uh, you know, but, man, even the process of that, man, Ethan and Sky, I, we've known them for like 20 years. 
They are dear friends, man. They are family. And when God started to move in their hearts and our hearts about starting a church in Topeka, because we prayed about it a lot, because we started having some Topekans, and we believe in the ministry of the local, local church, and we believe that it comes at cost. Man, I tried to work against it. It scared me. God, would there be anything left? I mean, he took like the whole worship team, you know? I was like, is there going to be anything left? I ain't leading. And God provided. But meditating on this, okay, I'm just going to, whatever you put in my hands, I'm just going to turn around and give it. I'm just going to trust that there will be enough left over. You know, the simplicity that we see here doesn't mean it doesn't take faith. But the process that we've seen is that they took what was too little and they gave it to Jesus and Jesus made it more than enough and there was enough left over. Jesus can deal with that. And so the call, man, if you're looking inside of your life and you're saying, man, I don't know if I have the reservoirs to keep going. I don't know if I have the strength to hang on. I don't know if I have the resources This is asking something pretty incredible. It's saying give it to Jesus and he'll make it enough. It may not be the way you think. But Jesus takes what is too little and makes it more than enough. And so like, do you need more? Is your little not enough? Are you running empty, afraid that you're not going to make it? Are you dismissing people away because you're afraid there'll be more than what you can handle? Are the resources at your hand Are they a joke? This stands here to say, man, Jesus, like Goldilocks and the bear, man, we say too little. And he says, man, I'm going to right size that, make it more than enough. But then the next part of this, Jesus also deals with too much. Jesus takes what what is too much and he makes it manageable. Like he's about to send the disciples into a storm, something that is too big for them. And he's about to silence the storm with his powerful word. He's about to call, you know, Peter deeper into the storm to leave the resources of the boat and the oars to trust in him. And so he's about to say, you never had enough, but I've been walking by you the whole time. And so he's going to take something that's too much and he's going to make it manageable. And we see this message all over. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. He says, man, if you have things that are too heavy and overbearing in your life, take my yoke upon you for it is easy and light. I am kind. Come and walk with me. He says, give me what's too heavy. We also see it as direction for the church in Galatians 6, where he says, you have heavy burdens? Church, Man, we're supposed to help each other carry what's heavy. We're supposed to see that way and stand beside those people. Because there's going to be a time you have too much weight and you need the church to stand beside you. You are needy and needed, but it only works if you are known. That's why we say weekly. Man, the gathering is great, but you need to get in a city group where you can be known. And we went from the city group where you get a life transformation group where you can have accountability, where you are known. People know your struggles. That I could ask the person in your life transformation group, how are they? And they could say exactly how you need to be prayed for because you are regularly letting them know. And so the levels of the church, man, it's not perfect, but we made this cool triangle thing. We're a weekly gathering, city group, life transformation group. It preaches. 
But it's a part of life of what you need. And so Jesus deals with too much. Look at verse 22. It says, immediately, so he just fed the 5,000, and then he's going to turn around. We're shifting scenes. We're shifting entire looks. We're dealing with a different kind of problem, but the same Jesus. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, look, we see it again. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He didn't just dismiss it, oh man, I'm just not ever going to pray. He made time and he made space. He pushed the crowds away. He pushed the disciples away. He sent them on mission. He's going to meet them in their need when they need it. But he got away for silence and solitude to hear from the Father. And like, I don't know when the last time you were just famished and hungry. But the hunger pains that you feel are minuscule in comparison to our soul. We need the word of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we need to acknowledge it more than anything else. And sometimes we just don't feel it. And so when you problems persist, when your energy is failing, when you don't know if you have enough, this practice, get away. Sit before the Lord and say, God, what, what do you think about it? And if you're like, man, I don't know how to pray. Man, Jesus deals with that. He helps us. He gives us, he gives us an idea. But let me just give you this. Like this was in a book uh, we recently read. But let me give you this. Just spill your guts before God. And seek his word in the scriptures. And when you find something, meditate upon it. Just tell him about it. Well, he already knows. Just tell him about it because there's something in there that you don't know yet, even though you're feeling it, but you haven't put words to it. And man, there's going to be these moments, if you really do this, if you're really heavy laden and burdened, where you actually put words to the problem and your lips going to like quiver and you're going to be like, I do not know, and that's what you're going to do. And Jesus is going to meet you in that moment because he loves to take what's too, too much to make it right size. And so we're going to see it. Verse 23 goes on. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, the disciples, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And so the picture is, it is late. We're about to see that it is the fourth watch of the night. It is late. They are a long ways off. They are caught in a storm with the wind against them. They are taking a beating from the wind and the rain. They are at the oars, straining to gain ground, working to get to safety, and they have been struggling for a long time. Can you relate? Can you relate what might have been stirring in their hearts? Like, God, we just, we just spent so much time working for you, giving everyone food. You put us in the boat and sent us across, and now this is what we get? We get this kind of storm? This is too much. Where's Jesus? H has he forgotten about us? Does he see what's going on? Does he even care? Is he having fun at his little Airbnb retreat up in the mountains? I mean, where is Jesus? Have you ever been afraid and overwhelmed, wondering if Jesus can come through? You know, the, the, the picture of the storm on water, I realize we're in Kansas, and so we... We may not know what that's really like. 
I was uh, doing student ministry in Western Oklahoma. Um, it, it's a lot like Western Kansas, except our dirt is red, you know. And uh, I had a student, and I went fishing with him, and I, I, I don't fish. And it's not because uh, I don't like it. It's because I don't catch anything. Therefore, I don't like it. And so I'm like a Jonah. Like, I mean, people are catching fish, and I get the water, and the fish are like, no, nope, no more. And so people don't like me to fish. You know, we actually recently had this experience. Our family, we started fishing. Anna, our youngest, is a fish slayer. Like, I'm standing next to her on the shoreline. She's got a three-foot pink pole, and she is pulling in, like, these large-mouth bass. And, I mean, she holds them up. She's like, mm, like, hold it up like this. And, you know, I've got, like, a perch. You know, I'm like, yeah, nibble on it. And so, I mean, like, I, I don't really fish, but I was fishing with one of my students, and we were in this small aluminum boat, like a two-man boat, but, like, two small men kind of boat. It had a 1.5-horsepower battery-fueled motor, and we were out fishing on this pretty good-sized pond, and uh, we're out fishing, and it, it's, it's the craziest thing. We were catching fish. I'm like, this is incredible. This is why people like to fish. Like, we were catching fish, and suddenly the, the sky kind of turned a green color, but we didn't care because we were catching fish. I mean, I don't know if you know, but that's a bad sign. When the, when the sky turns green, you're about to die. And so it turned green, but we were catching fish, so we can't stop. Suddenly, we kind of over the, the bluff, and it's western Oklahoma, so it's not like a bluff. I mean, it's bluff. You know, we see lightning. We're in an aluminum boat on water, but I mean, hey, we're catching fish, you know, so we just keep going. And then all of a sudden, it's like the storm arrived all at once. Like literally on one gust of wind over these trees, over this bluff, it hits the water and it seemed like one wave came for us. And so all at once, man, we slammed the prop into the water, hit the gas and 1.5 battery powered prop power started to not get us to safety. Going against the wind, going against the wave, we start taking water on. And so we were just on a pond. I mean, it was a big pond, but we were just on a pond. So we just ditched to the side and walked the boat around. But what if you can't get to the shore? What, what, what if there's no safety? What, what if all you can do is bail water and strain at the oars a little bit longer, and you're not going to beat the storm? You're just trying to survive the storm. Can we save ourselves a little bit longer just so that we make it. And so the, the picture is something out of control. They couldn't just ditch to the side and walk the boat around like we did. Like they're trying to get to the side, but it says the wind and the waves were against them. The disciples were in over their heads. It wasn't a western Oklahoma pond that they could just walk around. They needed help. And so then look at verse 25. It says, And in the fourth watch of the night, late, he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. So I just want you to notice, like verse, it says, when the disciples saw them. Like we don't know how long Jesus might have been walking beside them. But there was a moment where they realized, oh, wait a minute. There's someone walking on the water. We should take note of that. Like maybe Jesus was over there like, hey, y'all, it ain't working. Look at me. 
they didn't see Jesus. In their fear, they didn't see Jesus walking with them. Are you even looking for Jesus in your fear? See, fear is a way of blinding us that we only see what we think is the threat in front of us and we start to fixate upon it. And so wave after wave, you see what's coming at you. You see how the water's building up and certainly you need to see that. But they didn't see Jesus beside them. See, when it seems like we have too little and what's coming against is too great, like when they saw Jesus, they didn't see Jesus in their fear. Verse 26, it says, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now we read that, we're like, those silly disciples didn't know Jesus was walking on water. Okay, okay, it's a ghost. Jesus walking on water, like, I mean, potato, potato. I mean, I mean, it's like, you didn't see it. They didn't recognize Jesus in their fear. See, sometimes in difficulty, when things feel too big and too afraid, it's hard for us to recognize what Jesus is doing that Jesus actually sent them into the storm, that Jesus is meeting them in the storm. Like sometimes we have to really work. We have to, is that Jesus? See, this feels not characteristic of like the safety that I want or the control in life that I want, but Jesus sent me here. I didn't see him at first, but now I think I maybe see the movement of what Christ might be doing in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the rebuke of the word, or through the encouragement of the word, but suddenly like we have to recognize, man, that is Jesus. And so they didn't recognize him in the fear. They at first didn't see him in their fear. See, they needed to hear the words of Jesus in their fear. Look at verse 27. It says, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Man, before Jesus speaks to the storm around them, he speaks to the storm and the fear in them. And I find this is usually what Jesus does this is usually what the holy spirit does before he starts to address the problem outside of me he wants to draw attention to the problem inside of me and he says the problem inside of you is there is fear and that fear is not wrong to have but that fear makes a really crummy guide or director and if you keep listening to the fear you're not going to recognize what i'm doing and you're going to miss me and it actually says something really incredible. Look back at verse 27. It says, take heart, it is I. The it is I comes from ego imi. Yes, lego my ego. It comes from ego imi. And it is translated elsewhere as I am. And most commentaries look at this and they say, man, it's kind of hard. It's kind of weird. And so they translate it as it is me. But elsewhere, that exact phrase is taken as Jesus saying the I am phrase, the name that God gave himself to Moses at the burning bush when he says, man, listen, if I go to free your people out of Egypt and they say, who sent you? I want to know what to tell them. I don't want to say the cool bush sent me so who do I say sent me he says you tell him I am there's nothing that can describe me I'm beyond all of that I am what you need I am the safety you want I am the freedom that will come I am the God that is come and learn from me learn who I am and so it's possible that what Jesus says says take heart I am 
All of God, all the power has been bestowed upon me. I'm the second part of the Trinity. I am God made man. I am with you in the storm. I did send you here, but I can be trusted. The name of Yahweh God that he gave Moses the burnished, the great I am. And, you know, there's, there's debate, you know, is this just saying, oh, it's me, don't be scared, or is this saying more? But what he's about to do is saying a whole lot more, certainly. So verse 28, then Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me, command me to come to you on the water. When your world is too much, And inside of you, there is too little. The simplicity of what you need is the commands of God. You need God himself, but you need the commands of God. They needed the commands of God in their fear. Like, I don't know what to do, so command me. And he goes a little bit further. Hey, I want to walk on water. That looks cool. But he goes a little bit further. But like, it's a really scary thing to ask in suffering. And when something feels too big... To look at Jesus and say, what do you want me to do? Because he is mischievous. And he might say something like, I want you to go deeper into the storm. Or he might say something, I want you to stay longer in the storm. Or he might say, I want you to forgive who caused the storm. Or he might say, I want you to lay down the only thing that you have working for you in the storm. I want you to lay down and let go of the boat and the oars. Like, let's think about the boat and oars just a little bit. The boat and the oars. Like they're the only thing in their grasp, in their hand, that gives them tangible hope of surviving. And he says, all right, Peter, step out. Like the boat and the oars, like they were the only useful tool that they could grip to outlast the storm. They're not going to beat it. They're hoping they can survive it. The boat and the oars. It's the only thing that helped them point the boat in the right direction so it doesn't capsize. And like command me, step out of the boat, lay the boat and the oars down. See, in suffering, like we, there, I just Googled coping tools. And I got all kinds of healthy coping tools. And then I Googled bad coping tools. And all of a sudden, distraction of Netflix and binge watching, it doesn't fix anything. It just tries to numb what you feel. Or doom scrolling, you can't doom scroll your way out of this. Or the numbing agent of drink or drugs, it's not helping you, it's only taking your humanity away. Or the safety of isolation, you think, man, those people will hurt me, I'll just be safe here. But it's only growing bitterness and lack of empathy for others. Or the next relationship. But it's not going to fix you any more than the last relationship didn't fix you, or the relationship before that didn't fix you. And so we keep going. Or maybe like, man, I'm just going to keep cutting. And you know cutting's not going to fix it. But gosh, it used to pacify some of the pain for a moment. And this would be equivalent of Jesus saying, lay it down. Whatever is in your hand that you think is just enough to get you by that you might survive it, lay it down and not just lay the oars down, step out of the boat. Lay it down. Jesus commanded Peter to let go of the safety that he had for the promise of Jesus in something that certainly looked like it couldn't hold his weight. Jesus said, stop, 
Stop your self-control. Stop your self-protecting. Stop your self-promoting efforts. Step out of the boat. It's for him to stop the controllable saving efforts. And I just got to think, man, surely one of the disciples was like, <laughs> okay, walk on water? You can have my oar out of my cold, dead hands. And so verse 29, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat. He walked on water and came to Jesus. Man, moment, victory. Man, I, I laid the oars down. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, Jesus. Not like those chumps. Look at me. I mean, just the moment, humble obedience, man, the next breath is pride. Um, if you're not used to that uh, little whirlwind of life, keep walking with Jesus. Humble obedience, and they're like, man, I nailed it. I am so humble. People should learn from me. Humble obedience. Pride steps in. But look, it doesn't say pride, but look, look, at what, look at what it says. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Fears aren't silenced easily. They're not silenced easy, easily. Peter said, man, there's a storm. Command me. Jesus says, come on. Peter got out of the boat, walked on water, and then his fears returned. And it shrank his faith. And like that pattern, fears just aren't silenced easily. Like they have a way of coming back. Like we look to the side of Jesus and we see the wind and we see the waves and we're reminded of, man, I was drowning and it, it wasn't good. And man, I don't know if it's going to work out. Like they're just not silenced easily. You, you step back toward a relationship to offer forgiveness and you're like, man, what if I get hurt again? You step out in obedience. Like, man, what if it doesn't work? Sometime in this kind of last season, um, I was talking to a friend, and he's like, man, hey, how's it going? And I was like, man, I think I have to think about that for a little bit. And then I had this picture. And I was like, man, you know what it feels like? You know that scene in The Emperor Strikes Back when our hero Luke, like, man, he's trained up by Yoda. You know, I can be your backpack while you run kind of thing. He is ready. He is full of optimism. So he's trained up, full of optimism. And he goes and he faces Darth Vader and he ends up with his hand cut off, serious daddy issues, hanging on the bottom of Cloud City, crying for his sister to come save him. In that moment, he's probably thinking, man, maybe I should have gone with the family business. The dark side doesn't look so bad. I was like, man, I just feel beat up. Like, just, like there's times of life where you're just like, Man, all this optimism, and man, it's just hard. It wasn't what I thought it would be. The waves, like they're colder than I thought. They hit harder than I thought. And like just kind of waiting upon the Lord. Like, like fears aren't silenced easily. And oftentimes they're the same thing you've heard over and over and over. Like what do fears sound like? Like, like they might sound like, I'll always be alone if I keep falling after God. Or I can't fix this relationship. Like God can't fix this relationship. Or I'm too far gone, even for the resurrection power of God. Or, you know, I can't stop this. I can't quit this. Or I can't go back again. 
I mean, really, again? I'm going to go tell God again that I messed up? Or I'm going to tell, you know, the people I love again that I messed up? Like, like those kind of fears, they aren't silenced easier. And, you know, like that, that is for all believers in all places. We wrestle with the accusation and the temptation from Satan. And, man, it comes in different ways. But at its root, it kind of has the same thing. Like, what if God doesn't come through? What if I believe him in vain? What if I don't hear God correctly and I ruin everything? What if I get it wrong and my family suffers? What, what if I got it wrong and I'm just hanging on to the oars and faking it? Or what if the only thing, the only leading I heard was actually just pride? Like, what if the people who left me, what if they were actually right? Like, the fears mount and they kind of all have this same kind of sound. Like, can God really be trusted? Does he really want the best for you? If you step out of that boat, will he hold you or will you sink? Fears aren't silenced easily. And so Peter looks and he sees the wind and he's like, man, this, I mean, in the natural world, this isn't supposed to work out. They're not silenced easy. But what it also is true you won't cry out to God until you're convinced that you can't save you. See, what, what we don't see here is Jesus get you know, he's out in the water, Peter gets out of the boat, and we don't know how he got out of the boat. I mean, maybe, you know, he's on the edge, like, hanging on, like, you know, John, hold my hand, you know, or maybe he's freaky. Maybe he just jumped out and sashayed. I mean, I don't know how he got out. Maybe he dove in and found out it was hard. You know, I don't know. But he gets out of the boat and he starts to sink. We don't see him like dog paddling for like 45 minutes of, I got this, Jesus. We, we don't see him like holding his breath like you do in the movie when they have to swim under the thing to get to the end and you find out everybody dies because you can't hold your breath that long. We don't see like bubbles coming up. We see as soon as he starts to sink, he says this, save me. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I mean, I, I just almost find it, like, funny. You know, was Peter like, like, is it not obvious? Well, I mean, look around you. Or was Jesus just kind of snirk, you know, smirking, like, why did you doubt? I mean, all of this? I mean, I don't know. But it brings up a question, why do we doubt? And so I, I've got a list. It's going to go really, really fast. I think we see it all in this text, and there's a lot more. I, I'd encourage you to, you know, why do we doubt? When fear takes hold, why do we start to doubt? The first one, we, we doubt because we don't see Jesus walking with us. In verse 26, it says, when they saw him. We believe that we're all alone, and we are out of his vision. He's up on the mountain, far away from us, and it is left to us. So we can't trust the promises of God. We've got to take the oars into our hand and keep going. We certainly can't lay those down. We don't see Jesus walking with us. Why, why do we doubt? We don't recognize Jesus' voice because all we can hear is the howling fear around us. Verse 27, like Jesus reminds him that he is in control. He actually makes a God claim. I think Jesus takes us into uncontrollable situations because he wants to see us to see something about his Godship. Things that you think will keep you safe, the oars in the boat, I'm what keep you safe. But we don't recognize his voice. We don't take time and sit and listen. 
Or we doubt because we believe that the storm is just too big for Jesus. In verse 24, the disciples were using all of their nautical experience, all of their strength to survive the storm. The oars were stilled before the storm was stilled. Command me. We doubt because we think we're too small or insignificant for Jesus' attention or care. In verses 17 through 24, Jesus takes the five loaves and two fish and he makes it more than enough. He came to take notice of the insignificant. Like this is a huge thing through all of the scriptures. Why did I choose Israel? I mean, they weren't super cool or powerful. They were kind of insignificant, but I loved them. I loved them. Why, why Mary? I mean, she was just a young girl, a nobody. Joseph, a poor working class guy. The shepherds, the first witnesses to Jesus, they were the guys that couldn't get off work off the night shift. Like they showed up and people rejoiced. But like all we see is significance. Jesus comes around. He starts saying things like this. Thank you, God, that you reveal these truths, not to the wise and the prominent, but to the children. Like this message of God seeing the people who are insignificant is such good news because it's actually all of us. You see, Jesus came and he looked at the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people who had it all together, and he said, listen, the tax collectors and prostitutes, they're going to get in before you because they can see that they have need. See, sometimes we believe, man, I'm too small, too insignificant for Jesus' care, and yet all the flow of Scripture is, man, as soon as you see that you're small, man, Jesus is like right there, I'm here. I've been walking with you the whole time. This storm is scary. Walk on it. We doubt because we forget. The word translated here that says doubt, it actually means going two ways at the same time. And so it's the picture of like, you know, have you ever been lost and like kind of get frantic? And so you start doubling back and you're like, this is stupid. I'm still lost. And then you go forward and you double back and you go forward. When we forget, there's nothing that holds us. We don't remember what Jesus just did in the past. We don't remember the shore of the lake that we're on. We're prone to trust Jesus for a second and then ourselves for the whole day. We forget the shoreline. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish and there was more than enough. Jesus can take my yes and hold me up. We forget. We think, man, if I just have one more glorious interaction with God, then I'll believe forever. We have this glorious interaction and we forget. The howling winds of our fears raise up and we hear the same kind of message, man, you're not going to be enough. It's not going to work. God's not going to come through. You're going to crawl out there on the end of that branch and he's not going to meet you and you're going to fall and everything's going to hurt. We start to hear that over and over. But back to the question, what do we do with doubt? When we have it, this says we obey the commands of Jesus. Verse 28, Peter said, the storm is too much, but if you're here, command me. Man, just look to the commands. And this says we worship where we are. Verse 32, and when they got into the boat, 
the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Like, look at that progression. After Jesus raised up Peter, the storm fell silent, and the only thing to do was to worship Jesus. They didn't pick up the oars again. The only thing that was left was to worship Jesus. Peter cried out, and he was raised up to safety, and then he worshiped Jesus uh, on the authority and power to raise you up. He was raised up on the cross. And so we see this kind of language, like, like Romans chapter 4, verse 24. It says, it will be counted to us who believe in him, Jesus, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justifications. Jesus can raise us up because he was raised up. Or 1 Corinthians six fourteen, it says, and God raised the Lord and he will also raise us by his power. Peter cried out for help and was raised up and placed in the boat where the only thing left to do was just to worship Jesus. Peter was raised up after he laid down his saving efforts. You see, to become a Christian, you have to lay down not just your junk. Yes, you have to lay down your sin. You also have to lay down your saving efforts. And that is scary. The thing that's been coping you for so long that's been helping out, Jesus holds out and says, trust me with it. Trust me with that relationship. Trust me with that habit. Trust me with how you try to numb yourself out. Trust me. And so raising that down is surrendering. To become a Christian, you must surrender. But also to live as a Christian, you surrender just a little by little, day in and day out, as he points. And so are you surrendered? The, the picture of communion is kind of a picture of that surrender. You, came, you come to take what Jesus offers. See, in the storm, Jesus says, I, I am. Jesus offered himself. And before us at the table, man, we get it. Walk through that week and week where we just say, man, what do I have? And Jesus says, bring me what you have. And you're not bringing any food. Or if you are, keep it. That's weird. But you're not bringing anything, but what's provided for you is the body of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. And it's a reminder, the storms of your life, man, they're going to howl. They're going to be heard. But what you need more than anything is the resurrectional power of Jesus. He was lifted up. His body was broken. His blood was spilled. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, he will raise you up. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> um, Father, Lord, we, uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of need. And Lord, the great thing about that is it's actually the only thing we can bring. And so if we're full of doubt, if we're full of uncertainty, man, the table is for us. And what do we find at the table? Nothing that we brought, but we find bread and wine prepared for us, handed to us. And it's a reminder that we have Jesus. And if we bring too little, he makes it more than enough. If what's before us is too big, he can right-size it. And so I don't know what you have. I just encourage you to bring it.
just in honesty, you just bring it and you say, man, what do I find at the end of these steps? But I find Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be true. And, Lord, that motion is real. There's also a motion of just sitting and praying with someone or the motion of going back behind the screens and asking someone to pray if this thing is too big or I'm too small. And, Lord, that we just agree with one another that in it, no matter if we're too small or it's too big, we need the raising power of Jesus Christ, which is made possible. It has all dominion in heaven and on earth because his blood was spilled because before the foundation of the world, Jesus was slain. Great authority. Great authority. So Lord, we ask for help. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.